Welcome to Economics and Beyond. I'm Rob Johnson, president of the Institute for New Economic Thinking. Say you can kill my body. But you know you can't mess with my mind. So don't you can't kill my mind. You know we'll go away. We're gonna go away. Come back, come back, come back, come back. My second time. I'm here on a podcast for the second time with Dr. Peter Temin, who is a great influence in my life as an undergraduate at MIT and have known him and, and one of my other mentors, our research director, Tom Ferguson, and he have been co-authors of many things. I remember particularly uh, papers on the 1930s, 20s and 30s in, uh, in Germany as being very, very powerful. He's the Alicia Gray, the second professor emeritus in the economics department at MIT. Uh, he's done a number of extraordinary books over the years, but more recently, The Vanishing Middle Class has been, how do I say, uh, it's, it's almost like the talking points of INET. It's the guiding, like if when you travel, you buy a folder's guide, but when you talk about what INET's supposed to do, you read The Vanishing Middle Class and that gets you off the, at least in the global north, that tells you what to do. Uh, he's, he's obviously, uh, written this new book, Never Together, about the problems of race in the United States. I remember him being a very profound speaker at our 2016 conference in my home city of Detroit, where we, how would I say, experienced firsthand in my upbringing a lot of the kind of problems and challenges that you underscore. This book is part of the Studies in New Economic Thinking at Cambridge University Press, which is the INET series on what we think is at the cutting edge are the most important things to feature. So, Peter, thank you for being here, and thank you for being part of our efforts to illuminate the challenges that we face. Thank you, and I'm delighted to be here with you, Rob. Well, we have a lot to cover today, a lot of very, very powerful, uh, historic, sometimes uncomfortable historical experience, but sometimes you got to take the medicine in, in order to heal. I'm just curious, from your inner experience, how did you become inspired to write this book? Is there a uh, an aha moment, or is it just the culmination of things? Uh, you're very good at economic history, analytic history. There are wonderful tables, charts, references to historical episodes that make your point. This book is, it's kind of how I wish an economist was, able to integrate all of these things. And, uh, but I'm just curious, where, what, what triggered your setting off on this course? Well, a couple of years ago when the, uh, the American Economic Association was meeting in Atlanta, I figured who would I like to talk to? And that was, uh, uh, Lo uh, Logan, Trevin Logan, a black economic historian that I like very much. And we talked, and out of that talk came a, pap came a paper 
that I wrote with Trevin, uh, which is now up on the INET uh, uh, website. And uh, then uh, someone who knows the field said it looked very much like the outline of a book. And by that, Trevin had been promoted to a time-consuming job at, uh, at uh, Ohio State. So I wrote the book on my own. So it grows out of the uh, racial comments in The Vanishing Middle Class. And it starts with the Constitution and the notion that when they said all men, that meant all white men. Well, I, I think uh, I remember at the outset of your book, yeah. just to create an example, I think you, you created something that echoed throughout the book. It was from the Statue of Liberty. And a quote was, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. The wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, tempest lost, to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. Now, how would I say? Practice what you preach is what comes to my mind. The old, uh, right, the old song right. by Barry White. It doesn't feel, it feels like the vision we created of America to inspire people to believe in it and follow it is not what we've been doing. Right. Well, at that point, it meant both European and African immigrants. And the African immigrants were slaves. And the European uh, uh, immigrants had farms, and they used the uh, farms these slaves to uh, farm their grounds, uh, so on, and that led to a inequality of income. So, so there were two attempts to include blacks in the mainstream economy. Reconstruction followed the Civil War, and Lyndon Johnson's Great, great society followed World War One and World War Two. Excuse me. Yes, right. And uh, the first one uh, eliminated slavery, but it uh, but it did not grant freedom for freedmen forty acres and a mule. And the effects wore off by the end of the. 19th century. Lyndon Johnson's Great Society followed World War II, promised black voting and education, but it ended more quickly under Reagan and Clinton and when trade hurt rural whites in the 1990s. Whites reacted badly to both experiences. And that's because Gilded Ages increased races. The Gilded Age followed Reconstruction. White South was secured by the 1876 
presidential compromise. It brought the South into the U.S. by excluding blacks. And then Jim Crow's followed in the 19, in the uh, 1890s, which restricted black education and program, which lasted until World War II again. Our Gilded Age followed Johnson's Great Society. Rich people do not want to pay taxes uh, because they, uh, and they want to reduce services to workers, blacks, Latinos, and other poor people. They imprison blacks and the other poor people. Now, the Jim Crow laws uh, uh, the North industrialized and expanded West, the South remained agriculture and focused on cotton. Jim Crow laws segregated blacks. Southern labor markets were not linked to Northern ones. And freedmen earned less than whites. And that continues until today. Laws and lynching discouraged black voting peaked in the night in the 1880s and continued into 1920s. The Great Migration started in World War I when skilled blacks went north. Southern wages fell while northern wages rose. So Nixon started the war on drugs. He demonized blacks who opposed Vietnam and replaced John poverty war, Johnson's poverty war with his drug war. The U.S. now has 5% of the world's population and 25% of the world's prisoners. Three in black men go to prison during their lives. And drug laws are new Jim Crow laws. Uh, blacks are 12% of population and 40% of prisoners. Incarceration is now stable at high levels. No releases, or very few releases, I read about a couple, are uh, for COVID despite prison illnesses. Nixon racism is uh, uh, shown from the uh, view of his uh, top advisors. John Ehrlichman said that Nixon had two enemies, the antitrust left and the black people. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the coming news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. Haldeman, Nixon's chief of staff, confirmed this. The whole problem is really the blacks. Okay. So... The U.S., to repeat, has 
5% of the world population and 25% of the world prisoners. Mass incarceration is hardly mentioned in policy discussions. How many people know that one out of three African-Americans men go to prison at today's incarceration rate? These are problems that urgently need to be addressed. America was in turmoil in the 60s through the 1980s. The urban riots spread in the late 1960s. The war on drugs started uh, by Nixon, expanded by Reagan. 1986 and 1988 laws set minimum jail terms for drug crimes. The penalty for crack cocaine was a hundred times the penalty for powder, powder cocaine. Blacks use crack cocaine, whites use powder. The Turner Commission issued in 1968. The commission clearly stated that the problems were societal. Riots were started by blacks trying for equality with whites. But Nixon created the war on drugs, crimes on individuals. He wanted to condemn blacks who opposed the Vietnam War. He wanted individual crimes to demonize blacks, which they still do, creating a new Jim Crow. That's from Michelle Alexander's book. Race and income were important. Race described mass incarceration incidents. Blacks are more imprisoned than whites. The differences increase with family incomes, more than three times higher for poorest blacks than white blacks. Poor black boys are destroyed by prisons. No education, no workplace skills, unable to form families, crime and prison are a way of life. Black men remain a permanent underclass. So rebel relief rule is now nearly complete in many states. Frederick Double Douglas uh, said in 1894, and these words of an escaped slave are true again now. And Stacey Abrams formed Fair Fight in 2019, a century later, to get blacks to vote. Do we need another war to try again to desegregate our economy? That's an ominous thought. So let me ask you a little bit about the chart. So it shows that the among the poor, the likelihood of blacks being incarcerated is much greater. It shows among the wealthy, it's, it's still a lot more, but it's uh, diminished in proportion. But the thing that's not shown in the graph, 
when I looked at it is how hard it is for a black person to go from that lower level to that affluent level within a lifetime when there is incarceration, demonization, difficulty getting jobs and difficulty getting education that's of the quality that would allow you to move up that path. So it's, it's not all good news because not everybody has migrated out into the household rank of the wealthy. And that still isn't good news there. Uh, coming back to your thought, we have to fight another war. I mean, there, there was a sense. I remember reading things about Eliz um, Eleanor Roosevelt after her husband died and talking to Harry Truman about that these people were there defending our republic. They deserve access to all the things. They were kept out of certain universities. They were kept out of the social security system. If they were agriculture workers, there were all kinds of things still going on. But the pressure and the consciousness of leadership was changing. So if you, th you think right now, if we went and fought a war that we could make an irreversible change? Or do you think it would be just another nice bunch of gestures and then a counter-reaction put us right back where we've been? Yes. Uh, we may be uh, uh, approaching another civil war uh, because the Southern Labor, uh, Labor Association said that there was a tremendous amount of violence in 1921. So who knows where this is all going. Well, what I, in, in reading your book, I could see this, what you might call, oscillation. It was almost like a pendulum. People could see things that were wrong. Uh, the famous basketball player, Isaiah Thomas, who played with the Detroit Pistons for years, I saw him on a uh, his wife used to, or excuse me, his daughter used to work with my wife. And I saw him on a, a show, uh, it was a, like a video show with a woman named Lorna Johnson in Los Angeles. And he said, it's very frustrating to see the government resisting when you're talking about human rights. But what we really need is not human rights. What we need is birth rights. If you're a human being, you get the same portfolio as everyone else. And I thought that was a kind of... I, how we get there is a different question, but I thought that was a very powerful sense. And I, I myself, I've studied a lot of what you might call how music reflects the stress in a society. And people talk about, uh, oh, the spirituals. My favorite writer on music is a theologian, the late James Cone, uh, who I used to interact with quite frequently at Union Theological Seminary. And he said, uh, the spirituals are about the afterlife. Nothing you can do in this life. But the blues are from the Jim Crow era. When you are allegedly free, but you're not free, blues is about defiance in code in the here and now. So they'd go in to the juke joint knowing there were people with guns and nooses, and they would sing in code, my baby left me, my baby left me. And sometimes even the boss man would say, my baby's mean to me too, and they'd enjoy the performance. But what they didn't realize is the baby that left him, the baby that was treating him bad, was code. 
for their professional life, for working in the field, for working in the cotton area. And uh, so there was a kind of uh, rallying point from these different types of music that interacted with the social conditions. But what I keep seeing, is, and as I read your book, I see it codified so nicely, is, I mean, I won't say nicely, that's probably not right, it's, it's daunting to read, but it's, it's skillfully done, is we seem to have this urge to do the right thing as humans, to abide by the principles, say, of our founding documents, Declaration of Independence, Bill of Rights, and then we don't do it. And sometimes it's for commercial reasons, sometimes just based on historic fear, and we back off. And then we see an episode like lots of black people fighting in World War II, and we back off. Then we do the, the civil rights movement. I remember James Baldwin being concerned when Dr. King was murdered that the Black Panthers would frighten people and create a counter-revolution, which, as someone said, turned the war on poverty into the war on drugs. And you seem to, you seem to bring these things to the surface over and over again, it, that it's almost like an oscillating pendulum, but the fulcrum's not really moving very far. That's right. That's very good. And I've written on that. There's a kind of equilibrium. Uh, and you can derive that mathematically. Uh, that says we're in a stable position. I was helped by uh, Bob Solo, a Nobel Prize winner who I'm still in contact with at Brookhaven, uh, so on. And there's a PBS station uh, uh, special on the, uh, uh, the uh, people going on the, uh, uh, coming to the uh, outcome of jail and trying desperately to get to be part of the uh, white uh, economy and jobs and so on. So I recommend that to everyone. And I uh, told Bob about that. Uh, and he was interested. Good. Okay. I'm, I'm grinning because Bob Solo was my faculty advisor when I was an undergraduate at MIT. <laughs> and, uh, and so I learned, I learned a lot from him and I'm very grateful for his support and guidance in throughout my life. But, uh, but, I, but I look at that, when you talk about that, uh, people emerging from prison and how to reconnect with the world. I remember something that you gave in a talk that I want to bring up. I think it's probably, I do believe it's in the book. You talked about the kinds of behavior that economists might talk about. One would be uh, customary behavior, kind of doing what you did yesterday. And one was, uh, I don't know, I'll call it inspired behavior. And the third was subjecting yourself to command behavior and that the people in the prison aren't allowed to grow. That inspired behavior, that, that thinking about a better future, that support in regenerating and... I mean, if you believe in redemption, somebody in prison might feel bad about what they did in an impulsive moment and want to learn and become a better person. And that's not on offer, but the command 
behavior is fiercely there, which probably wounds and scars people that makes it harder to come out of prison and regain trust in humanity. Yes, well, uh, Professor Freeman at Harvard calls those the black elite, which are the residue of uh, the great society of, of President Johnson. Uh, and they've done well and have been accepted. Uh, if you get education, you can fit within the, uh, the uh, uh, kind of education you need. And when I visited my eldest child, uh, my daughter uh, Liz, uh, who is coming to visit me this afternoon, uh, has the, uh, the various uh, uh, books on there. And she said, do you realize that, uh, that uh, Colin already has more books than most people have uh, in their lifetimes. And that's why Pre-K Adventure, uh, which is still in the bill, but the bill hasn't been passed, uh, say, uh, because of opposition to this, which still uh, keeps because the uh, unemployment has uh, kind of come back, uh, the, the Powell is very cautiously working for this so he can try and avoid a recession at the end of the inflation, uh, so on. But the, uh, the volatility has uh, come for all these people that the Republican Party now embraces. Uh, of uh, violence. Uh, and so uh, it's very hard to know where we're going to go from here. Mm -hmm. Let me explore that for just a second. Coming from Detroit, seeing the Midwest, obviously it's a black majority city. But what I've also seen is what I'll call the Trumpian reaction in outstate Michigan. The, the, as the old uh, saying, the rising tide raises all boats, well, when the tide goes out, all the boats go down. And what, what I saw in Michigan particularly, and, and it's been vivid since George Floyd's murder, is that these people, are, the, these white people there are saying, wait a minute, the ship's sinking on me too. And they get, if you will, jealous that people are trying to talk about uplifting. And I don't mean doing it. I mean talking about uplifting black people and 400 years of woundedness. And they use the phrase reparations. And these people say, we're getting trashed as well. And they are very large numbers. And so I, I, I don't think, and, and you've talked about this and, and others have. I know John Paul was on my board. Uh, at Berkeley, it is that when the economy suffers, insecurity goes up, diseases of despair go up, and racial animosity goes up. The, the, the blaming of others is a, a disease associated with despair. 
Yes, and in Flint, Michigan, a Republican uh, uh, governor uh, sent supervisors to go on who wanted to cut money. And so he uh, uh, went off the uh, river from uh, getting uh, food, uh, water, uh, and, and had illnesses, uh, which have still not uh, still continuing uh, for this. There's settlement going on, and they have uh, impaired the younger blacks in the uh, Flint. So it's a kind of Republicans doing what they wanted with the black population of Flint, and they're now back on the river. Uh, but uh, they haven't had uh, their pipes, uh, pipes replaced even now. And these were lead pipes that created the toxins that created the disease, right? I remember the Flint water crisis. And there was a woman there who's mentioned in your book. Right, exactly. Who said, what a tragedy it is that they aren't replacing, aren't learning the lesson of those lead pipes and replacing them all over the country urgently. That, uh, that tolerating the poisoning, in this case, particularly of black people, is just horrid. And uh, the, the, the irony, to, the yeah, irony too. Uh, very slowly, like the infrastructure program uh, that Biden did pass is only slowly getting started, which you can notice by the potholes in Cambridge. So uh, there, I, I remind that to my class. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and this, you know, the irony in Michigan, whether it's Detroit water and sewage or Flint, is you're sitting there. I mean, when I was a kid, my dad was a sailor. When you were on Lake Huron, when I was a kid, if you were thirsty, you could take a ladle and take it, stick it in the water and drink it. The good quality fresh water in Lake Huron is plentiful and not far from Flint, Michigan. The idea that that happened there is just horrific. Yes, it is. It is horrible. And you could almost say, because of the rivalry between Detroit and what I'll call outstate, I wonder if the governor thought he was doing something to rally the enthusiasm by being cruel to the black people in Flint. That's just a hypothesis. I can't project onto the individual, but it seems awfully hideous. Well, he was the man who appointed the uh, the supervisor of Flint, so you can blame him. And the Detroit bankruptcy was kind of an anomaly too, because if you, you have a company that goes bankrupt, it has no revenue to pay people. The state of Michigan had a tax base so that, I'll just say it, women that worked in Detroit for 45 years in the municipal public service had their pensions cut in half and their health care removed. That, that's not, that's a choice. That's not a bankruptcy. That's a distributional choice. It's a really ugly thing that they did with the but and it's like mass incarceration. Nobody talks about it anymore in the policy grounds. 
it's just not uh, not not uh, changing at the moment. Yeah, I know. Uh, continuing. Heather Ann Thompson, who's a professor at University of Michigan, and she's written books on Attica Prison and so forth, did some studies on when prisons were privatized and built in upstate Michigan. What happened is lots of fathers got arrested in and around Detroit and put in those prisons, and the performance in schools deteriorated because of the 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 emotional turmoil of the children and then teachers who were being assessed based on things like multiple choice tests started to migrate out of Detroit because they were being penalized for something they had no control over and so the the entire social disintegration associated with accelerating the occupation the building of prisons and having them fully occupied was just ripping that culture apart and i know that's been true in, in i've heard similar stories about cleveland parts of illinois atlanta and many, many people have uh, gone back uh, when the uh, prejudice got to be too much uh, but even there they're put out for uh, prison put them out for uh, 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 mining activities, for which famously they uh, they uh, uh, die often, and that's in my book and so on, uh, an illustration of that. Yes, and so on. Uh, yes, I report all of these things that have gone from uh, uh, Friedman's day and. In uh, uh, Pittsburgh, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, that uh, made a uh, Trump uh, reschedule his rally there uh, to the problems elsewhere, and so on, and uh, uh, other places where uh, it had been come under uh, uh, kind of uh, blacks giving act. Uh, equal rights were then driven out of the city. Yes, so it's uh, it's a continual process, and we're by no means out of it today. And and, we, and people often say that the uh, right about prisons often say that the uh, the uh, incomes. Uh, of, uh, of blacks or the, the imprisonment of blacks is done by uh, consultation with the uh, other people and they often give the blacks that's to avoid the minimum sentence there and so they uh, give them uh, car theft or violent activity and send them back to prison uh, much more the blacks and the whites. And uh, there's now a movement of sort of, or, uh, among policemen to stop the, uh, uh, to end the traffic stops, which led one black woman to commit suicide, uh, to end 
Uh, and so uh, let's hope that they carry this forward on a national plane. I have a friend who works on a, a television series called Law and Order. And I went for a walk with him. His name's Fred Berner. And uh, he said to me that as he studies what's happening in society, say, since the time of George Floyd's murder, is a very deep conflictedness among people in the mid-career in law enforcement. In, in essence, saying what I'm, and, and what I'll call PTSD kind of symptoms are occurring because these people thought they were coming in to play a role stabilizing society. Then you have an extremely unjust society, which is in, unstable, and then they feel they have to escalate. And I'll add one other dimension. Fred didn't say this. The absence of gun control in America makes law enforcement officers very frightened compared to those in other countries. And so the, what I'll call meltdown emotionally of people in law enforcement who are caught in this cauldron it actually t tends to make them out of fear even more aggressive. Yes. And so uh, we don't know where it's going to go yet, but it is dangerous. And so uh, we... Uh, we're really uh, very uh, offended by it, yes. And so we'll see what, what happens. But given, given the inequality of income, uh, if or when the uh, Republicans get there, get into power, uh, most likely at this uh, coming election, uh, they'll try and turn back all of the progress that Biden has tried to make. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I, let's let's uh, move from, I, I guess what I'll call, I'm a doctor's son, from diagnosis to remedy. Let's study a bipartisan commission from the United States Congress came to you and I, and they said, we're really scared. The wheels are spinning off this vehicle called the United States of America. And we know we got to change course. So, Dr. Temin, what do, you, what do you and Rob Johnson say is what we have to do to get back on track, consistent with our founding principles, and move away from this pendulum, which has had what you might call a hideous equilibrium? for many, many years. Well, the way I end my new book is that you have to promote the education of, uh, of, of blacks, which is uh, why that's, uh, the pre-K is still part of the uh, reconciliation bill. Uh, let's hope it lasts through the passage of it. Uh, okay, and... Uh, they need to uh, give blacks the vote and make sure that they can vote uh, so that they can express their views. As, um, and the Republicans are very, uh, fact, uh, 
getting the uh, the uh, uh, vote and the uh, uh, getting the reconfiguring the uh, the voting populations so that they can uh, uh, get, uh, ensure them of getting uh, a Republican. Uh, so you're talking about gerrymandering and, and voter suppression activities. To An organization is uh, opposing on, on them, yes. So they have become the uh, party of violence, too, yes. So we'll see what happens with that. Yeah, but education is a key. What what would you, yeah, and voter suppression, and then I guess I was going to ask you, because we've, we've alluded to it, when a person is in prison, I mean, I, I understand, like Jim Heckman would talk about pre-K, teaches you how to work with other people and exist in a school, and by the time you're seven and your brain develops, you, you're emotionally comfortable and you thrive. And all of society saves from having basically everything from prenatal nutrition to early childhood education. But what if somebody is in prison in midstream, say 26 years old and in prison, what do you do to take them out of that command behavior and have a, which you might call a rehabilitation or a augmentation of their skills in a way where they can start to feel a confidence that they can live a better life when they leave prison? How do we put that together? That's very hard. And there are a number of private uh, and tax exempt organizations that uh, try and uh, give these prisoners a chance to reorient themselves. But the national government doesn't do anything but give them their clothes back, send them on a bus home. So... Uh, that's uh, pointing out what you can do at the fringes, but it's not pointing out what's needed. And education at this point is dying at the moment in the United States because the teachers are so ill-paid that you need to raise them. A few states have done so on, but the inflation is just keeping them even with the cost of living. So it's, uh, it's very hard at the moment. So are you hopeful that we might be, because of this suffering, whether it's climate or pandemic or racial, how would I say, hideousness that you have documented in this book, are, do you, are you, you know, sometimes they say it's darkest before dawn. Are you at all hopeful that the stress now is going to propel us into a different direction than we've been on, say, since 1970? Well, there were lots of uh, demonstrations uh, against the blacks. Uh, but after that, the budgets of uh, the police were regained. So we're going to change, but I don't know how quickly and so on. And unless we can tax the uh, Republicans and 
uh, Piketty has a new book saying that uh, for that uh, and advocating taxes. Uh, but that's not going to come about very soon either. So, so there may be light at the end of the tunnel, but it's a pretty long tunnel. Yeah, that's yeah. what I'm saying. Yeah. Okay. 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 Well, Peter, I want to say to you, you know, I mentioned at the outset that I've learned from you for many, many years, but I want my young scholars to understand how vital you are, how determined you are, how you've set yourself on a course. And it's not what you might call hiding in the apron strings of conventional wisdom. You've taken a path, you've seen things that concern you, you've studied them historically, you've studied them in data, and you've elevated and illuminated a very, very painful aspect of the country in which you live. That's what I call courage. And that's been in short supply within academic social science for a very long time. It has been. I, I want to I wanna applaud and I want to thank you for that. Because when you set that example, my young scholars can watch an episode like this or read a book like Vanishing Middle Class or Never Together. And it gives them inspiration. And when you said to me, the tunnel's long, I agree with you. But those young people are going to be at that end of that tunnel. And if they follow your example, I'm more optimistic. Okay, well, good for you. And let's, let's, let's hope it turns out your way, rather than my <laughs> pessimistic way. Yeah, so, but I, what I'm saying is, through your courage and your effort, ever so slightly perhaps, but you're changing the probabilities in my direction. Good. And so, okay. how do I say, actions speak louder than words, and your actions are contributing to a better outcome. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thanks for being with me today, and uh, thank you for writing this wonderful book and challenging us all to think about how we, how you say, never have to go back to being never together. Okay. We pull, and we put we put things back together. <laughs> yeah. So that was my wife, who has since died, uh, made that title. Yes, and I agree with her. Yes, so let's hope that the book does promote your uh, view of what's going to happen. Excellent. Okay. Thank you. Okay, my pleasure. We'll talk again. How do you say? I'm sure you got more ideas bubbling up, and I'm sure she's looking and down on you, grinning right now for this success. So I'll just wait for the next chapter whenever you're ready. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. And check out more from the Institute for New Economic Thinking at ineteconomics.org. And I'll tell it and speak it and think it and breathe it And reflect from the mountains so all souls can see it And I'll stand on the ocean until I start sinking but I'll know my song well before I start singing.